appreciate very much your willingness to uh, answer these questions. And uh, we've got some very good questions here, and it's a good thing we've set a deadline. Be before you start, I've got a seat right up here. Anybody want to take a seat? <laughs> seat? One extra seat? There's a man right over there. <laughs> Well, we could be here uh, quite some time with these excellent questions, but we'll, we'll move th through them as, uh, as quickly as we're able and try to answer as many of your questions as, as possible. Can everyone see the overhead? Is it uh, clear what's written there? I can tell now I have your undivided attention. You're looking hard, listening hard. Here's the first question that, that came to us a couple of weeks ago. There are those that teach that the Davidic covenant was postponed because the nation of Israel rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. This brought about the intercalation of the church age. What are your views on this theological interpretation? Yes, the Davidic covenant, was it postponed because of the nation of Israel rejecting Jesus Christ as the Messiah? I think, you know, when you consider what was happening in the last week of Jesus' life, it is not so much that Jesus came and offered himself to Israel and said, I will be your king if you will accept me to be your king. He instead, you know, as it were, picked up the telephone and called up Detroit or had Peter do that and said, deliver to me a bubble-top limousine, we're going into Jerusalem. In other words, he didn't offer to Israel the kingship and say, if you will accept me, I will be your king. He said, I am your king. Now, at the same time that he came in the triumphal entry, he also revealed the fact that he was to be a suffering king. And in that way, he broke apart one of the greatest mysteries that Israel had to deal with in the Old Testament in, in terms of understanding the prophecies of the Old Testament. And that was that they had predictions in the Old Testament of a glorious king in the early chapters of Isaiah, and a suffering servant in the later chapters of Isaiah. Now, as you read those later chapters of Isaiah about the suffering servant, the amazing thing is to find that that suffering servant has kingly capacities as well. He is to rule as far as the whole of the earth. He is to exercise and establish justice among the, the isles, that is, the, the farthest reaches of the world as far as they knew it that day. Now, the question was, how do you put together these two concepts of a glorious reigning king and a suffering servant who is also king? And it's not that Jesus either is king of Israel or not king of Israel or that the Davidic kingship is postponed but that Jesus merges these two things together 
at the point of his triumphal entry or the last week of his life, you remember that was Sunday before his crucifixion on Friday, and thereby he, he breaks apart this mystery that the kingdom is going to come in this form of humility. It's not that the kingdom is postponed. It's that the real nature of the, of the Davidic kingdom is manifested. And it's a kingdom in which sinners are going to be saved. And the only way sinners could be saved would be for the king to suffer in place of the sinners. And that is what Jesus did. So what you do not, you do not have a postponement of the establishment of the Davidic kingship. What you have is essentially a, a beginning of the process of the realization of that kingship in which first the king is manifested in his humility and in his humiliation as he suffers as the suffering kingly servant of Israel, but at the same time he manifests his glory. You know, shortly, I mean immediately, within a few days after his crucifixion, you have the resurrection in which he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. And then when Peter preaches his first sermon on the, on the day of Pentecost, he says that the prophets of old knowing the future spoke of the resurrection of Jesus and then they quote the Psalms in the Old Testament that talk about the Davidic kingship and the establishment of the Davidic king on the throne forever. So it isn't that the kingdom of God was postponed by Christ offering to the Jews a possibility of their establishing his, their, his kingship by their receiving him, it is instead that the kingship is manifested to be what it really was, a kingship in which sinners are saved by the, by the joining together of the sufferings and the humiliations of the king of Israel. It's a very good answer. That's 200 points. <laughs> and you can either take what's behind curtain number one or answer the next question. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> I've tried to, to put together some questions that go together. In this case, what are the differences between dispensationalists and covenant theologians? Or, as you teach, I'm keeping my ears open for differences between this covenant theology as, and the supposed opposition dispensationalism. I'm detecting some differences, but I'm seeing more similarities. Could you highlight a few points of major difference in your view that would be helpful for me to remember for the purpose of comparison as you continue through the series. I think Stuart Rankin wrote this question. <laughs> I think he ought to answer the question. <laughs> uh, let me tell you a little of my theological pilgrimage. I you know, was raised in a Presbyterian church had my three-year pin for perfect attendance in Sunday school and did not know Christ as Lord and Savior. It was a good church. Christ had been preached, but God had not opened my, eye, my ears. And then a traveling evangelist named Billy Graham came to town, and I was sitting up in his volunteer choir singing high tenor at that time since I was only 15 and my voice hadn't changed yet. And the first Sunday afternoon... The Lord spoke to my heart and I was converted. 
Well, immediately thereafter, I came under the teaching of one of the finest biblical expositors that I've ever known. Some of you may have known, may know him, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, the uh, head of the uh, New Testament department of another seminary. I won't mention that particular seminary. Some of you might know which seminary I'm speaking of. But he taught me the main tenets of Calvinism and affirmed that he believed them himself. And that sounded great with, to me. And he also taught me how to be a dispensationalist. And that was great to me also. So I became a Calvinistic dispensationalist under the teaching of a, of a man who was the head of the New Testament department of another seminary. And I, we have continued to have friendship through the years. As a matter of fact, an article that I had written is to be uh, printed in a, in a honorary volume for him at the time of his retirement in a year or so. This is a secret that he's not supposed to know about at this point. But uh, whoever wrote this, this question is very perceptive in that there are a tremendous amount of similarities between dispensationalism and covenant theology. We are committed to the same infallibility and inerrancy of the Bible. We are committed to the finality of revelation as over against continuing revelation in the New Testament or in the times of the church today. We are committed to the exposition of scripture as the source of all truth. We are strongly, equally committed to the reaching of the world for Christ and a world missions endeavor. We are committed to looking for the future and in, in Christ's coming and emphasizing the, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are tremendous similarities there. We are also committed to liking charts, and we both like charts very much. Now, I think we've got a little edge on them now in the charts that, uh, category, especially if we can get a panoramic screen uh, in the sanctuary up there. Now, where are the differences? Well, again, we start with the, with the common commitments and praise God for those, and, and we should recognize that our dispensational brothers uh, are brothers. Now, uh, if you have a Schofield Reference Bible, I think very interestingly, you can notice that there is a series of notes that run through the Schofield Bible that deal not only with the dispensation but also with the covenants. And it is very interesting. If you read the notes along the covenants, you will say, well, that's not very much different than what we've been hearing in church these previous Sundays. And that's exactly right. And when you read the dispensations, you'll say, wait a minute, this is saying something a little bit different. And I think that's right, too. And the problem that I see in, in dispensationalism is that, or one problem is that there is something of a tension within their own system in, in seeing two basic structurings of the Bible, one a dispensational structuring and one a covenantal structuring within the Bible itself. Now, naturally, it's my opinion that their covenantal notes are much closer to the truth than their dispensational notes, if you want to trace those two. Now, where do the differences come? Well, let me just point up a couple of areas the Lord willing, we will be dealing, or I will be dealing with this more particularly along the way here, and we certainly should be open for further discussion along the way. But one area is in the area of the relation of the Mosaic covenant of law to the Abrahamic covenant of promise. Now, again, this, there is a, quite an interesting change between the way this difference is formulated in what is called the New Schofield Bible 
produced in the 1950s, and the old Schofield Bible, which is the version that I lived with for some several years, that was produced, I think, 1909, somewhere around there. There's a, there's a real difference in their description of the relation of the Abrahamic covenant of promise and the Mosaic covenant of law. You can see that difference amplified in you know, the writings of C.I. Schofield in a little book, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. Now, at one point there, you know, Dr. Schofield says that when Israel came to Mount Sinai, they should not so rashly have accepted the proposal of God at Sinai, but they should have humbly pled for a longer period of grace and promise as they had had it under Abraham. Now, is that really what happened at Sinai? Here's the mountain shaking, and the fire is coming up, and the smoke, and God says, you shall do all of these things. And Israel says, all you tell us, we shall do. And I think you would have said the same thing. It wasn't a time <laughs> for bargaining. It wasn't a time for humbly pleading. And what is it that God was binding Israel to? Israel was being bound at that particular point to keep the moral law of God. They were being bound to keep the Ten Commandments. Their pledge, all that you command us to do, we shall do, was not a pledge of saying, now we'll stop being saved by grace and start being saved by works. Though that is the way sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it sounds in dispensational teaching, that there was a different way of salvation. And yet at the same time, a good dispensationalist will say, no, there never has been but one way of salvation. And we covenant theologians would agree 100% with the latter statement that there's always been one way of salvation. But it sounds sometimes as though the dispensationalist is saying that at that point of transition from the Abrahamic to the Mosaic covenant, Israel made a mistake. But if a covenant is a bond, sovereignly administered, Israel didn't have a choice at that point. And what they said when they said, all that you command us we shall do, is nothing less or nothing more than what you do when you pledge in the third membership vow, when you become a member of the Presbyterian Church in America, Wallace Memorial Presbyterian Church. You remember that vow? What is that vow? You promise that as God gives you grace, you will keep all the commandments that he has given. And that is a, a crucial point of your life as a Christian, that you're committed not only to Jesus Christ as Savior, but also to Jesus Christ as your Lord, the one who tells you how to run your life. And that is the commandments of God. So that's one difference, just uh, how the transition is made. And again, let me say, the dispensationalists say it in different ways. Now, the other question is the question of the relation of Israel and the church and the definition of the nature of Israel. The covenant theologian sees Israel and the church a little different than one another. And I'm going to save that question for another time. That's the bigger question, but just to leave you hanging here, <laughs> I'm going to save that question, the question of of Israel in relation to the church for another time, and maybe we'll have a few other questions here. Very good. 
This next question is, what is the difference between a promise and a covenant? Why haven't we heard about covenant theology before, or have we, and just missed the emphasis of covenant? Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. There, there is a, a book written by Walter Kaiser, who is a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, uh, on an uh, introduction to, to biblical, the theology of the Old Testament, in which the, the organizing theme of his book is the promises of God, the promise of God. Now, how is that different from covenants? Well, I would say that the covenants are kind of like the structure, the, the formalizing of the promises. It's kind of like the marriage vows. You make all sorts of promises in the context of the marriage vows. I promise that I'll bring you flowers you know, every time you get a little bit down or something like that, or candy just to express thanks for washing the dishes or getting my my bologna sandwich ready before I head off to church in the morning. You know, something like that, you know. You make lots of promises, but, but, the, but the larger bond there is the, is the marriage commitment. Now, I would see, and the, the scripture does speak of covenant in terms of a marriage relationship. And you know, it's that formal structure of the binding of God to his people. Now, in that context, there are lots of promises, just tons of promises. All things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. That's a promise. But the context in which that promise becomes binding is the covenant. When God has said in a formal way, I commit myself to life and death, that I shall fulfill every word that, that I have spoken. Now, why is it that you, know, you haven't heard about this before? Well, you know, I, it's kind of interesting. I, the theology or, or perspectives on the word seem to come in cycles. And for a while, covenant was in, in terms of people's discussion, and then it kind of faded into the background. And now, you can go read Roman Catholic theologians, and they say, you know, you know the, the real basis for understanding the structure of the Bible is the covenants. And more recently, speaking of the previous question, I saw a, a notebook that was written by some very fine dispensationalist men, and they said, we've discovered this great way of organizing the Bible. You know what it is? It's the covenants. Hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> okay. Okay, the next question is, are God's promises misleading when they have an obvious meaning that is not intended, rather an obscured one? For example, Abraham's seed, meaning spiritual versus physical descendants. Yes, it's, you know, God has made us in his own likeness and image, and we have a lot of capacity for thinking. You know, the human mind is the greatest computer. I, I saw this little ad recently. Have you, have you seen the, the greatest computer that, that has come out lately? You do all the memory in your mind. Hey, you know, that's pretty good. In, in the dark ages, in the middle ages, in the middle ages, there, there are records of numerous people who memorized the whole Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Now, I don't know if they memorized the concordance to go along with that. 
But that was pretty good in itself, you know. You'd have pretty good control of the scriptures if you had the whole thing memorized. We, we you know, and I, I do worry sometimes. We're going to get all this stuff. Our goal now is to get stuff into the machine. And I wonder if our goal shouldn't be to get something in our minds here. But we have a tremendous capacity as human beings. Now, why shouldn't God challenge us with a few thoughts? Why shouldn't he make a stretch a little bit? In fact, I think life would be rather boring if God didn't ask us to use our full capacities. And let's don't be just spectators like TV observers. Let's be participators. And that's why, frankly, I'm so encouraged to see so many out on Sunday evenings. I know that I cannot compete with Sunday evening television. There is no way. There is no way. But you're here because you want something else. You want what the Word of God says. And, and let's pray that the Lord will give us, give us that thing. You know, is God misleading when he says, talks about a seed, and he means spiritual seed as over against physical seed? No, God is not deceiving, and besides the fact, he doesn't mean simply spiritual seed is over against physical seed. As a matter of fact, the physical seed is a part of the, spirit, of, of the seed concept. The spiritual seed is also a part of the seed concept. And what God was doing was trying to make a very profound truth as simple as he could. You know, in the parables of Jesus, what Jesus was doing was being the master teacher. The scripture says that he taught them as they were able to understand. And you try sometimes duplicating anything like a parable of Jesus. You know, they're, they're, no one has been able to duplicate the parables of Jesus, to, break, to take the most profound truths of of reality and put them in a little story form and have everything in perfect balance the way Jesus did. It is amazing. And he did all of that so as to communicate truth. Now, if you don't understand the parables, it's not because they are not simple, it's because we are a little thick. And so it is with our failure to understand the seed concept in the Old Testament. It's not that it's not put out as simple as can be in terms of a very profound truth, which is that there is a continuity of God's working in the covenants, but there is also the concept that you can't be presumptuous. You can't say just because I am a physical descendant of a believer or one that's been grafted in, then I can be sure that I'm going to be saved. Or I can't just presume that, that all Israelites are going to be saved in the sense of every single individual. You know what I would do if I were absolutely sure that every Israelite was going to be saved? Why, well, I'd convert to Judaism. <laughs> Because you can become a full-fledged Jew, you could from the days of Abraham. But God's not going, you're not going to get God in a box. You're not going to get God in a box. And God is not going to make profound truth simplistic to the point of, of veiling the truth. I see that hand. <laughs> Both at the same time, right, yes. We are thick and he has not opened our eyes. No. Dr. Robertson, how can a person know for sure that he or she is saved, that the covenants really apply to a particular person? Can we know the truth and not know it is for us? Mm. Well... I, in this context, I, I think of a great sermon preached by that great Calvinistic Baptist. We're crossing all kinds of lines here tonight, aren't we? That 
great Calvinistic Baptist C.H. Spurgeon on the text in Revelation 22:17, where it says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that, is, that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And his sermon is entitled, Come and Welcome. And he, as a Calvinistic Baptist, just knocks down every straw man, every objection to the free coming of any who will. Let me tell you, you can be assured, if you desire salvation, you come to Christ, and Christ has never turned down anyone who has come to him. Now, we know, because the scripture tells us that no man is going to come to him unless the Father which has sent him draws them to him. We know that fact. But that's not the base. You don't sit around and say, well, is, I don't know whether I'm being drawn or not. Do you want to come? You come. I don't know whether I'm elect or not. If you come, you are elect. Not that your coming makes you elect. But if you desire to be saved and are ready to return and re return from your sins and renounce your transgressions, and ask Christ to deliver you from every sin and confess those before him, you come. And then you can be sure, absolutely sure, that all the promises of God are, are for you. Is there anyone here tonight that wishes to come? Then you come, and Christ is more ready to receive you than you are willing to come. Thank you. This will be our last question. When someone who had been a foreigner confessed faith in the Lord and received the sign of the covenant, where would he be installed among the 12 tribes? That is a good question. Would you like to answer this? <laughs> if you wish. Well, it depends on who he married. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, isn't that right? Yeah, depends on who he married. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's about as good as you can do. It depends on who he married. Maybe, maybe I don't know. <laughs> Make up an answer, any answer, that'll do. Maybe it was where they needed battle warriors the most. But I suspect that marriage relationship probably had as much to do with anything. Of course, you know, you do have this interesting situation that could happen in Israel. You could have an Egyptian proselyte marry an Assyrian proselyte, and their offspring would be full-fledged Jewish. Isn't that interesting? That's really interesting. <laughs> I would... I would think they'd be in the tribe that they, that they were first received. That's, That's probably true. Well, we thank all of you for coming tonight, and uh, we want some more questions. So uh, if we've raised some tonight, uh, please <laughs> jot those down. And uh, <laughs> if we've answered some tonight, please uh, let Dr. Robertson know that. And uh, in the days ahead, either, either put them in the... Uh, the offering plate at that point, or you can leave them in the office or give them to a pastor or open your Bible and search for the answer yourself. <laughs> well, we thank you all for coming, and we hope that you have a good rest this evening and, 
and a glorious day with the Lord tomorrow.